Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing in Central Connecticut State University. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a Theatrical Director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth is here with us in the studio today. And joining us today, fresh from a, a very interesting trip to the Pacific Island of Tuvalu, is uh, Richard Hill. He's here in the studio with us today. Richard is host of First Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand as a rotating host of Mike Check also. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPCAN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, that airs uh, Mondays, and executive producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which airs here and other stations around the country. Thank you all for joining us today, and I should ask uh, our co-hosts, Richard and Ruth Ann, who are all with us in the studio today for the first time in a while, how are you all? How are you doing this morning? I'm uh, I'm surviving. Yeah, it's, I made made the trip early in the morning, and uh, it's doable. I <laughs> apparently Tuvalu is a long way away, though. It, yeah, no, I had to, it, there was a, a considerable uh, discomfort making that 14-hour flight, but I'm yeah. I'm here. Okay, that's good. And Ruthie, how are you doing? I'm thriving. I'm just about to start directing a play uh, called Bakersfield Mist. Uh, that's about artistic authenticity and ex-bartenders and things like that. It's a wonder, wonderful play. And other than that, I'm watching way too much TV tuned to news programs. Well, I'm glad you're all here with us in the studio today. And uh, we're very happy uh, to welcome back to our program today Adam Eichen. He's the executive director of the group Equal Citizens, a nonprofit nonpartisan organization dedicated to fixing our democracy. Adam is co-author, along with Francis Moore LePay, of the book Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. Last summer, Adam wrote the In These Times article titled The Right Wing is Going All Out to Unravel Our Democracy, and he joined us in September to discuss the threat posed by the Moore versus Harper case that was the subject of an important Supreme Court hearing this past Wednesday, December 7th. That case revolves around North Carolina's Republican Party's challenge to their state Supreme Court's jurisdiction to strike down the state legislature's partisan gerrymandered maps. That case uh, pivots on the so-called independent state legislature theory, the same discredited theory that Trump and his coup plotters, including John Eastman, attempted to use to overturn uh, state's popular vote results in the 2020 presidential election and replaced the winner, uh, Joe Biden's electoral college electors, with Trump electors. And they had this, the fake electors all set up, as we know. Um, but, Adam, thank you so much, uh, first off, for, for making time to join us this Saturday morning. Appreciate you being here. Of course. Thank you so much for having me back. This is... Uh they're important discussions, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of them. And I thought I would ask you first, not about the Moore versus Harper case, but more generally, I wanted to uh, start off by asking about uh, voter suppression and the issues that we've seen unfold in recent years where dozens of uh, Republican-controlled states have uh, passed and imposed these voter suppression laws, and including uh, Georgia's notorious SB202 law that makes it much harder for all Georgians to vote, particularly voters from communities of color, new citizens, and young people. I'll add that uh, U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock, in his victory speech uh, last Tuesday, warned the nation against complacency about the corrosive effect of voter suppression laws, despite his narrow win in that Senate runoff election on Tuesday. 
Tell us a bit about uh, what we've seen unfold with voter suppression around the country, Adam, if you would. Yeah, I mean, you know, not to use the language of an epidemic, but I think that it's pretty clear that um, there has been an epidemic of voter suppression across the country over the last um, 15 or so years, uh, mostly at the behest of uh, Republican officials on the state level and also on the national level. Um, and, and it's been very egregious. And I think that one of the things that I'm hoping we can get into today is, um, you know, the results of the midterm election, this past one, and also the 2020 election has led a lot of people to believe that, um, you know, that the threat of voter suppression can be overcome. Um, because, you know, look at their election results. Uh, Democrats, you know, with largely, you know, with, with large majorities of, of people of color have worked out, organized these anti-voter laws. Um, but that's the wrong takeaway here, that, that what we're seeing is in states across the country, specifically states that are controlled by Republican Republicans in the state house, are passing laws that make it incredibly more difficult to to cast a ballot, either in the registration process, so making it uh, increasing the burdens or the requirements of what you have to do in order to register, um, but then also ballot access in terms of documentation that you might have to bring to the polls or who is eligible to cast a, a ballot by mail or what identification you might have to bring if you are, or send in if you want to request an absentee ballot. That every one of these hurdles that they add increases not only the costs, but also the confusion uh, for voters who want to take advantage of these opportunities to cast a ballot. And, and, and quite simply, it's unacceptable. And even if we look at election results and say, well, look, turnout was high. Um, look, you know, my preferred candidate won or the Democrat won because, you know, they were able to out-organize suppression. That that's the wrong question, because what we're seeing is these policies become uh, even more harsh in some places and, and even more nuanced in terms of trying to increase uh, the cost of voting, but also the confusion for voters who, who might just simply say, I don't understand how to request an absentee ballot at this point, or I thought I, I had, but I guess I didn't, and I'm going to not vote. Um, and this is a game of margins, especially in, in states like Georgia, where the election results are incredibly close. And so we don't need to see a 5% reduction in, in voter turnout or a 5% reduction in, you know, from the Republicans' perspective, in the Democratic vote share. Um, you we're really talking about a, a couple thousand votes here, a couple thousand votes here, and that's what these laws are, are largely designed to do. And again, I, I mean, I, I give a major shout out to, to folks across the country who are, who are working to out, um, outwit the voters, the vote suppressors, um, because they have been doing tremendous work. And we saw that in Georgia in terms of the community organizations that are putting literal blood, sweat and tears on the line um, to work past some very confusing, arcane and anti-voter measures in place. Um, but over the long run, that's not how we should be operating democracy, that there's a, 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 a election scholar, a law professor, Rick Hassan, who's termed this the, the broader subject of like, these battle over anti-voter laws as the voting wars. Uh, one side uh, is trying to pass very strict voting policy to make it harder to vote. And on the other side, largely the Democratic Party, although not all state Democratic parties, have been trying to expand the ballot and expand ballot access. And that's the flip side of this story, is as much as we focus on the states that are doing egregious things to suppress the vote, that we are seeing an increased number of states that are either via ballot initiative or via actual uh, legislative process, expanding the ballots in, in ways that we've never seen before through policies like automatic voter registration or one of my favorite same-day voter registration or automatically sending out ballots, ballot applications for people who want to vote or just sending them about if they've done it in the past uh, to vote, right? And so we're seeing these voting wars um, not, not recede um, just because, you know, the results of the 2022 midterms, we see some real hopeful signs um, we're, we're seeing a real intensification over these um, the, 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 these voting wars, and, and it, it's very, very deleterious to, to our society. This is not, this is not a long-term sustainable um, way to conduct a, a, a healthy democracy in, in a country as large as the United States. And we have to remember that uh, extreme partisan and racial gerrymandering is really part of the whole picture of yes. uh, voter suppression as well. But uh, our panelists, uh, Ruth Ann and Richard, um, Richard Hill, have a question for you. Of course. 
I was wondering if you if you could expand on uh, gerrymandering a bit. I I remember uh, Trump pushing uh, ways of manipulating the census, and it was clearly uh, associated with uh, possible opportunities to re-gerrymander and uh, make it make it even more difficult for Democratic votes to register at all. Yeah, I mean the census process was like, this is another thing that the, the, the biennial or the, the, the decennial census, right, is something that is in the Constitution and we've been doing forever, and it, it shouldn't be something that you're trying to manipulate. But the Trump administration absolutely attempted to do this by adding um, a, a question about citizenship in, in, a, in a not so subtle way to to try and make it less likely that. Um, that uh, 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 Latinx uh, um, Americans would 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 feel comfortable answering uh, census takers, right? And so, mm-hmm. in, in order to deflate the number of Latinx um, people counted in the census, and and I should also say the census does not say um, to count citizens in the United States. It says to count every ten years everybody living in the United States. And so, this was a a, a really disgusting ploy by the Trump administration. That fortunately was blocked in the Supreme Court in, I think, 2019, right before the census was going underway. Um, and, and you know, but ultimately it, it, le- it did lead to a lot of confusion. I haven't seen anything per se that, um, that, that the counts were, that there was a substantial undercount because community groups have been, spent a lot of time in the census turning out people to vote. But um, it's certainly something that, you know, um, is, is is a very dangerous sign of, of again trying to weaponize the census and then also weaponize the census to then try to make it easier to gerrymander maps because if you're if you're undercounting um, uh, people who are living in urban areas it makes it easier to then inflate rural districts in 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 state level maps um, and so it's a whole arcane process but the idea here is that right that these are all ways that most Americans don't think about of, of, of when they're thinking of democracy. But if you're if you're engaging in chicanery um, on 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 these kind of arcane election law processes that we don't that Americans don't think about always, um, it may actually be the difference between um, you know a, 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 a government that actually represents the people versus one that is is kind of uh, better represented as uh, rule by minority. Um, and, and if we do want to talk about gerrymandering, I'll throw it back to you guys, but I do want to talk about gerrymandering at some point today um, in respect to the 2022 midterm, because ultimately uh, the House of Representatives went to Republican control because of gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. And so that's something we might want to talk about. Adam, this is Richard Hill uh, with a question. I wanted you to maybe expand on the, the question of how the Republicans may react to this I guess you could describe it as a disappointing result for their offices, so to speak, and how the virus, just as a virus will, might find a way around the result. In other words, more turnout, you get more youth turnout, more black and Latino turnout, more working class turnout in general coming to exercise the franchise. What's in the pipeline uh, or can we anticipate what the Republican states might do to block or to escalate this uh, voter suppression in future elections? Yeah, I mean, this is this is really this is the question, right? I mean, this is the real. There are two ways to view it, right? On the on the one hand, you look at you know the races for Secretary of State across the country, and at least in competitive races, so not in I think Indiana and Wyoming. Um, every single one of the candidates for Secretary of State that were so-called election uh, deniers, so people who spread lies about the 2020 election being stolen, all of them lost, right? And and we see it in in you know uh, races like Arizona's governor race, where Carrie Lake, who was an absolute extremist on these policies in terms of these anti-voter laws, lost. Um, we see it in Wisconsin that Tony Evers, the Democrat, was able to beat the Republican, who was also a hardline extremist, and so. In, in one respect, there's a there's a narrative that the Republican Party might learn from from these egregious anti-voter policies and, and how they are plainly unpalatable to the majority of Americans. Um, that's that's the kind of the optimistic take here. Um, I'm not sure if I buy it completely. I think that there it was a slight wake up call to the party. Um, but as, as you note, that electoral their electoral success of relying on a a increasingly small small portion of a, a white American population. 
uh, is not a winning electoral strategy. And so if they continue to want to appeal to the same group of voters, then these anti-voter policies is, are, is, is kind of an intrinsically part of their strategy. And and, you know, the the X factor in some respects is is former President Donald Trump. He has a real hold over the Republican Party. He is absolutely committed to the the lie that he tells himself that the reason he lost in 2020 and the reason he didn't win the popular vote, mind you, in 2016 was because of fraudulent ballots. And if he continues to hold a grasp of the party and forces or at least uh, cues as a, like a source cue to other Republican officials who want his endorsement, that they have to adhere to a certain line about broad national elections, about the myth of voter suppression, and about the actions that have to be taken in swing states to curtail the votes of young people, of minority groups. Um, then we're in for a continued protracted fight uh, in these voting wars. Um, and I, I don't really know what the future holds in that respect. I mean, I would like to think that the, the, the fever has broken slightly, but I'm, I'm not super convinced given that, um, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about the, the more of the Harper stuff that, you know, that, that there are still some real extremists running state governments uh, in swing states like in North Carolina and like in the legislature in Wisconsin um, who are absolutely hellbent on doing whatever they can to create what what might better be referred to as as subnational enclaves of authoritarianism in those states, um, because that's what's happening in North Carolina and Wisconsin. That these these legislatures are not democratic; they are unbreakable minority rules that have taken place over the last ten years, and I don't think they're going to give up that power. Um, and so it's this real real tension both in the Republican Party and between the Republicans and Democrats over this core contested issue of democracy and 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 that's why i completely agree that these these voting wars are the defining feature of our politics right now because it decides who has power in society and who's deserving of that power who's deserving to be represented in in a country of 330 million people adam i I did want to turn to the moore versus harper case and certainly uh in this discussion, you can lay out exactly what's at stake for democracy in the case. But when the Supreme Court justices heard arguments in the Moore versus Harper case on Wednesday, at least three of the court's extremist right-wing justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, signaled their openness to adopting this uh, independent state legislature theory that could hand partisan state legislators potentially unlimited power to manipulate election rules and draw unfair congressional districts. This theory, which even many conservative leaders don't support, could really destroy the nation's system of checks and balances and undermine the emergence of a truly uh, representative multiracial democracy. But uh, what's your takeaway from the hearings that uh, took place at the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that the threat of this case, if taken to its fullest extent, um, is is nothing short of, uh, uh, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't even have necessarily the words to describe it. It's, it's beyond a code red, right? It's, it's something that would completely upend uh, our nation's democracy. Um, you know, the the I, I I haven't admittedly listened to all three hours of oral arguments, so this was that that signals how important the case is. Right. Uh, in terms of how much time they dedicated to it, uh, it does seem at least the kind of the court pontificators are saying that at least three of the Republican justices were a little bit lukewarm on accepting the fullest extent of what the Republicans in North Carolina were arguing, which, again, to, to, to remind your listeners, right, is really it really comes down to when it comes to federal election policy. So when it comes to regulating federal elections. Because the states can set, according to the Constitution, can set the, the essentially set the rules for congressional or, or federal elections subject to Congress superseding them. But the idea is the state, it's up to the legislatures of the states to initially set the rules for the federal elections. And normally, right, what's traditionally been, been held is that that also is subject to a governor's veto, that the state constitution is also a, a check on that so that if the state constitution guarantees, you know, free and fair elections or the right to vote everybody, that the state legislature can't, cannot pass a law that 
uh, uh, goes against the state constitution or the federal constitution. And what the what the Republicans in North Carolina are essentially asking the Supreme Court to do is to say in its most extreme form that the legislature and again by legislature here, it's, it's, it's an absurdist reading of legislature, meaning just the state house and state Senate, not the governor, that just these two uh, these two bodies have unilateral control over federal elections uh, in state law. Again, subject to congressional oversight, uh, the, you know, the federal government, again, reigns supreme, but the federal government can't seem to pass any of these laws. And so basically they were saying state legislatures, just the House and the Senate in those states, would have unlimited control to do things over, the, o- o- over federal elections. Now, it seems, based on the oral arguments, that there is – some real skepticism about that extremist reading because it is extremist. It's it's extremist doesn't quite capture what that would do, um, right? I mean, we're talking about not just in terms of striking down decades upon decades of laws that would be in violation of that, um, also granting you know complete control over federal elections uh, subject to federal election or federal regulation um, in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin, but it would it would also uh, uh, you know, just <laughs> completely upend. It, it would create a two-tier system of, of uh, election regulation for states and federal elections. So, so for state elections and federal elections, it would be chaotic. It would be a bureau- bureaucratic chaos, right? And so it seems like three of the Republican members of the Supreme Court and the three Democrats are skeptical of taking the 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 doctrine to its fullest extent. And it seems like. Chief Justice Roberts and a couple others were trying to signal what would be some sort of middle ground of, yes, maybe the governor could still uh, uh, veto things or and the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court could still interpret the Constitution to strike down laws around the federal election. um, But it would have to be clearly defined. It couldn't rely on vague statutes um, like free and fair elections or, you know, uh, um, X, Y and Z. Right. That would still be a disaster, right? It would still upend probably countless laws uh, that are currently on the books. It would still grant additional power to, again, what I think is a pretty fair description of these authoritarian enclaves like the North Carolina state legislature and the Wisconsin state legislature, right? It would still be disastrous. And I also don't think that we should... Uh, assume that just because it seems like uh, uh, some of these conservative justices were um, signaling they were uncomfortable to the full extent of the independent state legislature doctrine, that that, that should be grounds to be complacent here. It's just still, it's a, it, from the best that I understand, it is still absolutely a live ball. If it's a, a middle ground ruling in favor of North Carolina or if it's the fullest extent, we will have to organize and try to figure out next steps of what to do to ensure the least possible harm. But this case is truly probably the most opaque, uh, arcane, little-known thing the Supreme Court is looking at right now that would have the biggest ramifications uh, uh, (laughs) for our entire country. Um, It really is one of those things where you almost wish that it was nonstop coverage of trying to explain to people just how big a deal this would be if the Supreme Court uh, made the incorrect decision to rely again on this really fringe theory that has no basis in originalism. Um, nothing in the original constitution or the original documents would suggest that, um, that the state legislature is just the state Senate and state house or that the state constitutions wouldn't be able to curtail the actions of state legislatures relating to the regulation of the federal elections. It's really madness. But again, when it comes to these voting wars, we live in madness. That if you find an ample opportunity to pursue anti-voter claims, you might get it. And that's really what's going on here. I did want to just uh, ask what the possible antidote to a middle ground or a full-blown decision in support of this uh, independent state legislature theory in the Supreme Court. What is the antidote? I know... The Democrats tried and failed to pass the Freedom to Vote Act as well as the John mm-hmm. John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act uh, because of the filibuster in the Senate mostly. But uh, w- what are some of the antidotes? What, what could be done to protect democracy if the Supreme Court 
goes in a very dark direction, as, as might be the case. Congress will have to act. Um, to the best of my understanding, that would be the best solution. Um, Congress, again, as the, the body that has the, the ultimate authority over congressional elections, and based on the Constitution, uh, could act to mitigate a lot of these things. Um, and, you know, and so, and so we'll see, right? I mean, we'll see what, we'll see what happens here. Um, you know, I, I, really, I really regret that the, that the, the Democrats, in, when with unified control of the government, couldn't overcome the filibuster to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Um, that, that, that might be looked upon as one of the biggest failures of the Biden administration. And, and with, with full, full aware, right, I'm fully aware given that I was, I was in that fight, right, um, you know, day in and day out trying to pass that bill, that uh, it may well have been impossible to move the senator, the two senators who refused to create an exception to the filibuster for these bills, uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Um, Maybe it was impossible, but that's one of those things that, and I, and I hope it doesn't quite come to this, in, in, at least in respect to more of the Harper, that that's one of those decisions that we may well look, look back at and say, you know, that, that really was the moment where this could have been semi-avoided. Um, again, there may be re- legal ramifications beyond uh, what, uh, you know, certainly what the federal government would have done in that moment, or there may be kind of other corollaries that come from this decision that I'm not necessarily thinking about in the moment. Um, but I think that moving forward, if, if this decision turns out to be a disaster, that we will have to see some sort of elevation of standards of, uh, for federal elections across the country via uh, federal legislation. And, and, and I don't want your listeners to think it's impossible. It's, it's totally possible. Um, it's just going to require a lot more organizing, the right circumstances. We may not get it tomorrow, um, but there are people in this fight who have been trying to fight for federal bills for years. It took the Voting Rights Act of 1965 decades to pass in the face of tremendous uncertainty. And so this is one of those things where, again, the, the, the movement here for federal and state protections of the right to vote against these, these anti-voter zealots is not going to abate, um, and especially not just going to abate um, just because the, the 2020 midterms were a rejection of, of some really extremist candidates. This is Resistance Roundtable. We're speaking with Adam Eichen, executive director of the group Equal Citizens. We're talking about voter suppression and the Moore versus Harper Supreme Court case. I'm Scott Harris. I'm here with Ruthie M. Baumgartner and uh, co-host uh, Richard Hill. Yeah, I have a question, Adam. This is Richard again. I wanted to, you to expand on this uh, thing that you mentioned, the, the two-tiered system that could occur were this uh, Moore versus Harper case to go in favor of North, uh, the North Carolina legislator, legislature. Um, what, what Could you uh, uh, flesh that out a little bit? What What... Does that reference mean? What is it referring to? Well, so, so I think the best way to describe this is because, right, states have control of state elections and the federal government has ultimate control over federal elections. Um, and, and so in this case, if, if the state house uh, or if the state government were to um, not be subject to constitutional protections or state Supreme Court for federal elections, they could make those rules uh, significantly more harsh than for state rules where – uh, they would still be constrained by the state constitution, um, and, and, and I will just say this has been a stra- this has been something that has long been a threat of having a kind of different regulations for state and federal elections uh, uh, for a while, right? I mean, especially when we were fighting for the national bill, the Freedom to Vote Act, um, there were definitely there was definitely a threat that uh, in response to um, the standards set out in the federal bill. So, right, the federal bill said that every state will have a certain number of early voting days, a certain number of, of, of offices that would be, um, or, or sorry, uh, that it would, it would, have, it would for, kind of mandate the implementation of same-day voter registration and automatic voter registration and would have, again, additional protections, right? And some states were openly threatening to say, okay, Congress has the unilateral authority for federal elections, but we're not going to implement this for state elections. The assumption is always if the federal government is going to make sure that this happens for federal elections, the states will 
because it would be an administrative burden, move their state regulations in line with federal elections. So if they have automatic voter, if they're required to have automatic voter registration for federal elections, they're not going to then say, well, if you're automatically vote, if you're if you're automatically registered via the Department of Motor Vehicles, that only applies for federal elections, and you'll get a you'll get a federal only bill, and you'll not get a state election bill unless you're registered the correct way for state elections. And so this would be the flip to that. If if, if the states then made federal election regulations on the state level more extreme, more anti-voter than the state elections, which they can't because they're still constrained by the state constitution for state elections. And then you would have two different sets of regulations. Again, this is really arcane and kind of like part of a a product of a constitution that was uh, the result of, of major compromises upon its founding where we give control over state elections to states, but we give control of federal elections to Congress. But then states still have the ability to alter congressional elections subject to the, the, the ultimate authority of the federal government. Yeah. And if it sounds complex, it is. It's a mess. And, and that's why this case could throw it into such, such, such chaos is because there are so many of these contingencies and different sources of power that bad actors, when given the authority in the states to not be constrained by state constitutions or, or the, gu- the gubernatorial veto or the state Supreme Court, could push this to its logical extension of really doing chaos to federal elections um, and because they know that the federal government is, may not step in because it's gridlocked in Washington. How, how could the federal government step in in the case of a specific state, uh, you know, pursuing some uh, egregious... A policy. I mean, is is that only through legislation, uh, federal legislation, or is there some more preemptive uh, mechanism? Yeah, I mean, I I, I want to. I'll caution my response just to say that I'm not a voting rights attorney, so I, I wouldn't feel comfortable giving kind of claims about 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 lawsuits. I mean, there 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 are still theoretically until the Roberts courts completely gets rid of it, there's still the Voting Rights Act. And so there's still protections against discrimination under the 14th Amendment. Um, so, you know, theoretically, if, if a state government were to explicitly target communities of color explicitly, that that would still be um, something that based on the federal constitution, they couldn't do. So that the federal constitution would still apply in, 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 in the case of federal elections on the state level. Um, so you could still litigate there. Um, but but again, I think that the response is 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 federal guidelines, federal standards via, passed via um, via legislation in Congress that would raise up the standards across all fifty states on on key issues of access and 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 democracy. Right, that the solution here really shouldn't be complicated. It should be that Congress can just mandate that for congressional elections or for any sort of federal elections across the country that there is the 15 minimum days of early voting. Everybody shall have access to, to register on the day of the election, like they have in states across the country, right? That um, there, there is a certain guarantee to have your vote counted, that you have a certain access to mail your ballot, and you have, you know, that the ballot must, must be received within three days of the election to be counted, Right. Like these are all standards that we could set and in not a patchwork fashion, but across the country. Um, and and that that to me is is the ultimate solution here of of these kind of authoritarian enclave um, legislatures that are seeking to roll back democracies that we have to actually just mandate use, use the Constitution in the way that that it best protects democracy, which is Congress has unilateral control over federal elections. And Congress can at any time step in via statute to say that, no, we are guaranteeing the right to vote, right? There's still no federal protection. There's no, there's no federal guarantee to vote, which is a whole nother issue. But the idea is Congress could step in at any point and say, when it comes to federal elections, regardless of what uh, the independent state legislature doctrine may or may not say, that Congress, as, a sole, as the ultimate authority on, on federal elections, we are setting standards that all states must acquiesce to for federal elections. And we are raising that bar. It's no longer going to be a race to the bottom. Now it is, you cannot go below this, um, this standard that is accessible and equitable to all American citizens. 
I did want to just move to a slightly different topic, if I could, before we run out of time, and that is uh, reform of the Electoral Count Act. And just preface it by saying Trump and his Republican co-conspirators in Congress attempted to overturn the 2020 presidential election by manipulating the vice president's role and inserting fake state electors. And Adam, I did want to ask you, what are the chances are that in this lame duck session before the House moves to Republican control, that uh, reform of the Electoral Count Act can actually um, move forward and be signed into law? Yeah, I mean that's that's a really interesting question. I mean this this is this is a a bill in Congress that actually does have quite a number of Republican supporters, and and so there was some momentum. Ex- and and unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, it, it began during the fight for the Freedom to Vote Act, and was not, not so subtle attempt to kind of take take a little bit of air out of out of that bill. But put that aside, right? That this is you know that the Electoral Count Act is incredibly incredibly rickety. And 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 it clearly needs you know reform and and so it seems like there might be momentum to reform the electoral count act. They've been working on it for, I guess about, I, I want to say, at least since the summer. Maybe oh no no before that. I'm sorry. It's been it's been a, a little over a year. That's right. I'm, I'm getting my time confused now. And I don't have a good sense of if it's going to pass or if it's not. I'm not in the internal channels of that battle. Um, but if I were to that um, I would, I don't know. I mean, maybe I shouldn't give something. I, 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 I really could see it either way. I could, I could see this thing being swept under the rug and not being passed, or I could see, see them trying to do one, one more thing before um, Republicans take back control of the House, and, and it might put a kibosh on, on reforming the Electoral Count Act. Um, I certainly hope they act um, and, and, and do something to, to shore it up, because it's, uh, it's, it, it's certainly... Uh, provided a lot of chaos uh, in 2020. I was wondering with uh, with our reliance on federal law and the federal courts, to what extent we can really trust the federal courts. I keep thinking about a remark that Mitch McConnell made uh, several years ago in an interview where he described the appointment of of uh, Republican or right-wing judges to the federal bench as his project. And he said mm-hmm. his project was working was uh, working pretty well, and and uh, he expected it to succeed. If the, if he really did, I mean, I don't know to what extent the bench has been genuinely federalized. I know the Supremes don't look too chancy, but um, uh, to what extent the the federal bench has been uh, republicanized, and if that can succeed as a as a as a weapon against enforcing federal rights. Yeah, I mean that's 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 again one of one of the biggest roadblocks now to to um, you know, make, uh, uh, advancing democracy is certainly the federal courts and and not just the Supreme Court, which is now six three conservative liberal and right. and has inc- been incredibly hostile, like really beyond what most people understand, hostile towards democratic access. And and I should just say quick quick little thing because I know we're ending soon, and so I want to make sure to say this is that the Supreme Court. Uh, gave an okay, or essentially gave a push the ball uh, can down the road on these two cases in Louisiana, and and I'm forgetting the second state now um, uh, uh, for uh, very clear racial gerrymanders. In other words, packing or cracking uh, uh, community groups, in this case African Americans, to dilute their political power, which has long been unconstitutional over the last 30 years. But they've been chipping away at this uh, the, the, these kind of cases around racial gerrymandering, making it harder to prove. And um, this is one of those things where those were, I think, at least two seats um, that were part of the, that would have gone to a Democrat and also went to a Republican because, again, they engaged in this process called racial gerrymandering. And so that was one of the reasons why Republicans took back the House, because the Supreme Court didn't immediately put a kibosh to that, that racism in, in, in redistricting. So to the point about the, the, the Supreme Court, they've been a disaster. But as, you're right, as you rightly note, uh, Mitch McConnell and Trump stacked the federal courts with a bunch of anti-democratic justices. We see this again and again. We see it, you know, even, even on issues beyond voting policy, but on something like student debt, where you see kind of um, judges across the country that are increasingly conservative blocking uh, progress from the state level or the federal level. Um, I will say one of the reasons why uh, Raphael Warnock 
winning re-election as a senator in um in Georgia on Tuesday is so important is because it will uh, uh, unclog the the kind of the split in the Judiciary Committee, which will allow Joe Biden to nominate and then confirm in the Senate uh, pro-democracy justices at a much quicker rate than he did during his first two years. And so there are people working very hard to try and get more pro-democracy. And then really, I mean, small D democracy. Right. Mm. Um, Justices out there that are open to interpreting these statutes in a way that is more pro voter as opposed to explicitly anti voter. Um, But it's still a really big problem that you're right to pick up on. There are people in in this country. I mean, I'm thinking of Mark Elias, for example, um, who has has been filing uh, cases in, in state courts and in federal courts and has been has been winning. But the overall situation of the federal court is is in, in, kind of incredibly precarious. And, and I, I think that if there's one thing Mitch McConnell succeeded on more than anything else, it is, I completely agree, if that was his own words, it was, his yeah. project of, of, of stacking the federal courts. That is something that is going to pay dividends for generations. That's a really depressing answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. We have time for me to give one optimistic answer because I feel like we have focused so much on the negative. But I do want to give you guys a little bit of, of, of reasons why I feel it's not hopeful. I feel continued motivation to keep fighting. Please do. We want to end on a up note. <laughs> OK, that's what I want, because there's, there's so much to talk about that is negative. There's so much. There's so many places where, again, in these voting wars, I hate using military references, but but, you know, I, I think that um, I think that the metaphor is apt there because it is a very, very harsh con- conflict and combat. But um, we continually see signs in states across the country that for every state like North Carolina, that, again, is descending into, again, I'm not being hyperbolic, an authoritarian enclave. It is rule by minority of voters. That for every state like that, we are seeing states step up to advance democracy in ways previously unimaginable. And we see this both that the politicians in these states are pushing the ball forward, but also voters are stepping up when given the chance to pass policies, they do it. So I'm thinking of in Michigan in 2018 and in 2022, this past election, voters have gone to the ballot and pass an initiative to greatly expand democracy and prevent democratic backsliding in that state. Again, in 2018, what did they do? A group of voters organized like heck, put an initiative to end gerrymandering on the ballot and create an independent redistricting, redistricting committee to take it out of the hands of the then Republican legislature, and it passed overwhelmingly. What do we see in 2021? We see new maps that are fair, and then when, in 2022, what do we see? Under fair maps, Democrats win more votes and they win more seats for the first time in the past decade, right? And we see this again and again. When, we're, when voters have the opportunity to push democracy forward, they usually will vote yes. We see it in Connecticut, voters passing early voting. We see it in Nevada doing a first step of a constitutional amendment, I, I believe it's an amendment, uh, to implement ranked choice voting. We see it again and again that when citizens have the ability to push democracy forward, they're voting in favor of, uh, of democracy. And even in Arizona, they voted down a restrictive voter ID that would make it more light or, or make it harder to vote in that state and passed a bill via ballot initiative to disclose money in elections. Right. So citizens intuitively get the, and, and believe in democracy. And when you elect state representatives that believe in democracy as well, they're no longer just sitting on their heels and not acting mm-hmm. in a way that they, especially Democratic legislatures, had been doing for a very long time. But now we're seeing states across the country, even in the Northeast, where the election laws, you may not think about it, but are incredibly arcane and restrictive. You see Democrats that were long complacent on election policies actually acting to push the ball forward and be a an actual shining beacon of what could be possible, what what a multiracial democracy could look like, and serve as a model and a counterexample to the restrictive anti-voter and racist policies that are being passed in these mostly Republican-held uh, uh, state legislatures.
And so for me, it's not just about the anti-voter side of these voting wars. It's really about the fact that, you know, for a long time, there has been no pro-democracy side or it was just kind of an insider thing in D.C., but is now an, an honest-to-goodness movement across the country with organizations, uh, politicians, ordinary citizens actually fighting back, you know, to make sure that we don't just reject these politicians who are, are extremists on voting policy, but are actually then going to do something to improve the inequities that we know exists, that Republicans can roll, you know, or not just Republicans, but traditionally Republicans can, can you know, make voting harder. But the status quo was also unacceptable. The status quo of democracy in America was always regressive compared to other countries across the world. And now we're finally making good on that, that we're not saying the status quo is enough, but we're going to go further and actually what are the racial inequities in our democracy? What are the class inequities? Where do people get confused? How do people end up not completing a ballot? How can we make it better? And we're actually making progress on that, and that to me is the most hopeful thing that I have witnessed in American politics over the last five-plus years because that didn't exist prior to 2015. But now we're seeing a multiracial, multi-issue coalition of people fighting not just to protect but to expand democratic access, and that's nothing to sneeze at. That gives me tremendous, tremendous hope no matter what the Supreme Court says, although you, you better be sure I'm watching that with, with some real worry. Adam, before we sign off with you, I wanted to just follow up. Hope this doesn't deflate the optimism that you just... <laughs> <laughs> but what is the power of the ballot initiatives, as you pointed out, in several states have actually promoted democracy? If the independent state legislature theory is uh, affirmed by the Supreme Court, how might that affect the process of ballot initiatives in at the state oh, yeah. level it, it would it would it would uh, you you thought a good way to uh to to give a, a big asterisk i guess because yeah it would it would completely upend it right that it would be taking ballot initiatives in the most extreme form are taking power away from the state legislature and so ballot initiatives you know there there's i suppose a reading of the of the inter, um the independent state uh, legislature doctrine that would say that that is not the quote unquote legislature. Um, so that, that, that could be a real dagger in, in, in that tool in, in, in our toolkit as people who believe in democracy. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why, you know, it really depends on if indeed the court is, is considering a middle ground. If they're not looking at North Carolina's argument and saying, I accept it 100%, it will be very interesting. And, and, and in fact, critical um, to to see what, what exactly they they they, they rule. Um, are they going to rule broadly enough to potentially disrupt the initiative process for people who believe in democracy, or will that still be a, a, an avenue that's open um, for our movement? And and I certainly am. am, am I I'll say that I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> we 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 need, we need that avenue. But even if that avenue gets foreclosed, um, reformers will keep pushing. Um, but but certainly. It, you know, that would be very, very, very bad. Mm. Well, I think we're uh, going to leave it on that kind of mixed <laughs> message note about optimism it, it, and it, it uh, be pos- possible it, disaster. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it, real it sober look. At- because we, we, we live in a in a dangerous time for democracy. And but the key is, is we don't know what the future is. It could go either way. But, but ultimately, it's up to us to figure out which path we choose. Well, Adam, thank you for joining us on Resistance Roundtable this morning. We always uh, appreciate your analysis and uh, projection of not only what the institutions in this country might be doing, but what we as citizens need to do. So appreciate you being here. And uh, we've been speaking with Adam Ike. Uh, he's executive director of the group Equal Citizens, a nonprofit, nonpartisan group dedicated to fixing our democracy. Thanks so much, Adam. Appreciate it. Glad to come back anytime. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. So that was a complete rundown on um, what we're facing as a country in terms of our shining beacon on the hill of democracy. <laughs> That's not so shining. Well, he was. He proved what what I used to say to people when they'd say, "Phew, we dodged a bullet." And I say, "Yeah, there's always another bullet." So. Yeah, there's more bullets in the yeah. chamber. Yeah, cannonball coming. Yeah. Right. Well, we have about four minutes left, and um, 
I'm not sure if we, um, I know we had some commentary that we were holding to the end of the program, but um, uh, Ruth, uh, Richard, I'm not sure who has something to say. I think we have time for one, maybe. Yeah, I, Richard do no, that. I just wanted to raise the questions. You know, we just heard yesterday that Kristen Cinema has abdicated her status as a Democrat and has become an independent. And I'm wondering if anybody has any uh, thoughts on that. Well, from what I heard, you probably all heard this too. Is she's going to caucus with the with the Democrats? That's clear now. Yeah, that's what I heard this morning. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, right. like Bernie Sanders and uh, the senator from Maine, they're both independents as well, and they caucus with the Democrats. So, I think they'll still effectively have fifty-one votes in the U.S. Senate mm-hmm. come January. That's a relief. Do you do you think that she? Uh, has has got a little arrow with her saying, uh, "Dear Joe, Joe, dear Joe Manchin, come with." Wow, that's I mean that's just, that's that's a real possibility. That, that's yeah. the first thing that leaped to mind because they seem to be, if not in lockstep, at least their shoelaces sort of tied together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm my fear is that Manchin will just switch parties. You know, that's I've had it with you guys. You don't appreciate me. I'm that's enough. I've had it. I'm gone. Well, we have two and a half minutes. and uh, <laughs> Let's just count it down. <laughs> <laughs> We're stunned after our discussion with Adam Eichen and uh, the prospects for a democracy to uh, survive in the coming months. But anyway, I, I, I'll just mention briefly that another alarming situation for democracy uh, pertains to Israel, where Jewish extremists and ultranationalist parties are about to have more power in Israel than they've had in 70 years. And uh, my guest, Mel Goodman, a former CIA analyst, said last week, entitled his article, that um, fascism is alive and well in Israel today because uh, they're going to what seems to be policies promoting full apartheid in Israel. And yeah. their, their democracy is um, at death's door, it seems, at this point. Everybody with yeah. a memory has died. Huh? Am I right that there's... Potential policy that could be enacted there to expel the Arab population from Israel proper? I I specifically don't know exactly. I mean, they haven't taken power yet, but that's certainly been their talking point for years. Right. Some of the the more extreme groups. Yeah. So that's a a sobering point right there. There have been many U.S. Zionist diplomats who say the U.S. should cut off Israeli uh, arms supplies if they move to annex the West Bank and expel Palestinians. Mm-hmm. We're not sure if the Biden administration will, will go there. At any rate, thank you um, all for being in the studio today. Yes, it's a joyous reunion, I must say. Great to be here. And I would say home is the Richard home from the hill, hills on various desert islands and things. And nice, to, <laughs> right. nice to see it's you been, on our land. It's been quite the peripatetic uh, <laughs> existence. We'll be back next month with another edition of our Resistance Roundtable program. And we hope you'll join us then here on listener-sponsored WPKN Bridgeport. We'll be back Saturday, January 14th. Stay tuned. Lots more coming up here on WPKN.